Murdoch and the No campaign, inflation falls as neoliberalism fails, the end of forced casualization, and good news about trees. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. And I do have some other projects upcoming. And early adopter of the new Threads social media platform. <laughs> I am on Threads, this is true. I'm also on Mastodon, although I do forget that one, because everybody there's kind of grumpy and blue sky. You can find me on all of them. Is my wife and your friend Van Bannum. How are you, Van? Well, I am your friend, and that's enriched my life considerably. Ben and I are engaging renovations at the moment. So we, rather than broadcasting from our shed, we're in our spare room up to our ears in everything we own. That's right. And you won't hear Germanicus on today's episode because, Van, he is with my mum. He is with the greatest dog sitter in world history. Fiona, thank you so much for your tender care towards our beloved hound. But I don't think even the dog could get through the house at the moment because you and I are certainly struggling. Yes, yes, we have uh, a lifetime of stuff uh, and we need to just declutter. (laughs) Speaking of decluttering our lives, we have decided to add more to the agenda rather than subtract from the agenda because, Van, we are going to have a bit of an experiment with a, a new kind of spin-off in conversation with Van Battam. This is true. So Ben and I really love doing the week on Wednesday in this format so we can have the kind of chats that we have. Uh, We do do interviews occasionally and as time has gone on and people have suggested, oh, you should interview this person and interview that person, because Ben does his offering on Sunday, the weekend wrap, where he does his, uh, you know, news briefing for the week ahead in a shorter format than the week on Wednesday, what I'm really interested in is having chats about the stuff that I find interesting with people who I find interesting. And I've just done an interview that we're putting together at the moment with the amazing Miles Taylor. Now, Miles Taylor is an extraordinary person. He is not somebody who I ever thought I would be friends, let alone comrades with, Ben. No, because, of course, he is formerly uh, an official in the Trump administration. He was not just an official in the Trump administration. He was a very senior official in the Department of Homeland Security. He is someone who comes from, he describes himself as a small L libertarian, mm-hmm. uh, fiscally conservative, socially progressive, and not somebody who I ever thought I would be sharing a political raft with, I've got to say. In the 1990s when I was at university, Benjamin, the likes of Miles Taylor were, you know, politely considered, you know, the forces of darkness in my political circles. But the Trump administration, of course, forced a lot of people who are on the centre-right to make really life-changing decisions about whether they were going to go along with the modern Republican Party or whether they were going to stand up for more important principles. So if you want to hear Van talk to Miles, we will have uh, this very special first episode of Van Batten in conversation uh, coming out at some point in the month of July. Uh, we'll do these from time to time. We do get a lot of requests for people to come on the show. Uh, we think this is possibly uh, an exciting new format, an exciting new way for us to do this. Uh, hopefully you'll tune in uh, and hear Van talk uh, with Miles. He's got a book coming out. It's called Blowback. It is already a bestseller. It's about his time in the Trump administration and the decisions that he made and the things that he saw that led him to become one of the most famous whistleblowers in history, actually at no small personal cost to himself, but it is an amazing book and we talk about it. And the idea of this conversation series is that I will just be talking to people who I find interesting about elements of their life and work that I find interesting. So if you're interested in the things I'm interested about, I certainly recommend that you get on board. And the interview with Miles is amazing. Like it is, we live in an amazing moment of history, Ben, I've got to say. It's pretty incredible. So if you're not already a Week on Wednesday supporter, you can go along to buymeacoffee.com slash Week on Wednesday. Uh, Join our mailing list there. You can 
make a contribution as well. This podcast uh, will always be free to listen and free to download, as will uh, Van Batum in Conversation. Certainly, initially, is going to be free for everyone. Uh, but if you'd like to make a contribution, you can do that there. You can sign up to the list. We'll email you out the links. You'll be able to get them wherever you get this podcast as well. Uh, so keep keep your eyes peeled. Keep your ears open because uh, Van Batum in Conversation with uh, will debut this month, July 2023. And certainly if you're a PR person and you represent someone who you think I would like, please do send The Week on Wednesday an email. Yeah, do. Uh, you can contact us at theweekonwednesday at gmail.com. Very creative email address there. <laughs> uh, but do let us know if there are people you think Van should talk to. Uh, and if Van finds them interesting, then she might well do that. Oh, and has time. Yeah. I mean, that's the other factor here. It will be in a regular broadcast, but if, when I find time, I will use it. Yeah. So we, we'll get a few of those uh, in the can uh, as best we can. Van, speaking uh, of trying to do the best we can, actors and screenwriters in America, of course, have been on strike. Uh, but, you know, it's not just uh, actors and screenwriters people who are at that kind of peak of uh, their profession, the people who we would look up to as cultural icons. It's also sports uh, stars as well. Here, Right here in Australia, just this very week, uh, the Rugby League Players Association addressed the Australian Council of Trade Unions Executive, uh, a body that I know quite well, our good friend and comrade, Sally McManus, of course, is the secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And an unrepentant Eels fan. Uh yeah, like she's a huge rugby league fan. Um, so they they addressed the executive about their uh, collective bargaining and the fact that the NRL, the the body which they play the competition for, uh, is resisting uh, their attempts to uh, have a collective agreement. Now, you know, it just goes to show that whether you're working in Hollywood, whether you're a professional sports player, whether you're stacking shelves, uh, whether you're uh, working as a courier. Of course, we saw this week uh, the tragic, uh, needless death uh, of a food delivery uh, rider uh, with more calls for safety for gig workers, of course, whether you're in the care industry, uh, whatever industry you're in, there is a union for you. And you can join your union. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. While you listen to this podcast, if you're not already a member, sign up. If you've got friends who aren't a member, send them the link. Because, you know, the, the Rugby League Players Association has said this. The Rugby League Players Association recognises how important the union movement has been for workers in this country and still are today. The strong foundations that they have firmly entrenched across countless industries, have paved the way for sports unions and associations. And it's true across every sector. Absolutely, because every sector has its own risks and every sector has its its need for representation to their employers in order to maximise their potential in the workplace and also keep them safe. And NRL, one finds it, absolutely horrifying that a sport that is visibly sometimes quite terrifying to watch uh, that the NRL administration is combating attempts at collective organising, like that's not on. And it's been really great to see so many people back in, and I say this as a person who works in the entertainment industry, so many people back in without question the rights of writers and actors to go on strike Mm. in the United States. And I'd like to do a shout out for one of my unions because I'm a member of MIA, which is the yep. Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, and I'm also a member of the Australian Writers Guild, which represents screenwriters, and the Australian Writers Guild mobilised the largest solidarity protest in the world with our comrades and colleagues in the United States of America. And, yes, there really is a union for everyone. And it's so, it is absolutely so important. You know, it, it boggled my mind when I saw uh, that the NRL is resisting uh, having an industrial mediator or using the Fair Work Commission to resolve disputes, uh, and that they're actually trying to bust uh, the players' union. Uh, wow, well, I mean, it sounds like industrial bullying. I mean, I'm sure it isn't, <laughs> but it really sounds like industrial bullying, Ben. And look, you know, one of the key things that, that unions uh, and workers, when they unionise, uh, 
do is they deliver safer workplaces. And clearly the NRL knows that there are safety issues with the sport. Uh, They know that there are issues of low wages further down the chain from the top level, and they don't want to address that. So all solidarity to the Players Association at the NRL, all solidarity to the writers and actors who are striving uh, to get their rights protected, and all solidarity with every worker, whether you're in a care sector, whether you're in hospitality, whatever it is that you're doing, if you're standing together in union for your rights, you have the solidarity of the week on Wednesday and Van and myself. And if you're not already a member of your union, go to that link. www. I always say that. I always say I'm so old. Don't judge me, Ben. I am old. Everything used to have you a don't need the w. You don't need the W. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. I'm sorry about the www. I am 48. Anyway, speaking of things that are wrong, um, <laughs> Let's talk about Rupert Murdoch and the No campaign. Oh, my God. Because this has come up. Uh, there was a, a, an op-ed in uh, The Guardian, the very reputable newspaper of note for this household and for many of our listeners, uh, The Guardian Australia, written by Malcolm Turnbull, uh, former Prime Minister of Australia, Liberal Prime Minister of Australia. Yes, quite definitely a Liberal, always was a Liberal. Always will be. Uh, and Sharon Burrow, of course, former President of the ACT. Absolutely not a Liberal, never was, never will be. And former General Secretary of the ITUC, which is the International Trade Union Confederation. Confederation, which is the global body that brings union members together. Like the global ACTU. Basically. So these are two people with very different political backgrounds, ideological beliefs. Let me tell you the one thing they agree on, Ben, it's that there needs to be a Royal Commission into Rupert Murdoch. Look, I think there really does need to be a Royal Commission into Rupert Murdoch. Like I respect the right of a free press. Like that's absolutely fundamental to my political beliefs. Yeah. But... The, but rights also come with responsibilities, which I find hilarious because this is always a line that conservatives run, you know, whenever we talk about welfare, whenever we talk about trade unions, whenever we talk about any issue associated with proactive left-wing campaign, conservatives will go, oh, well, if you want industrial rights, you've got certain responsibilities to the workplace. Nobody's arguing with that. Simultaneously, if you are claiming the right to a free press to publish things, that comes with responsibilities to Rupert, like telling the truth. And let's be really, really clear about what has occurred now because there is a long history of billionaire-owned media in this country undermining fundamental democratic principles around truth, around uh, honest debate uh, and around Balance. And not character assassinating people is, it, I mean, character assassination is a kind of stock in trade. I say this is a person who, how many weeks was the col- were columns run about my preference for taking baths, which seemed like an extraordinary thing to discuss in a national newspaper. In the Australian. Mm. So it's the Australian, the so-called newspaper of note, uh, Rupert Murdoch's quote-unquote flagship newspaper, did write about you being in the bath on th- at least three separate occasions. Uh, but, you know, the, the Australian... Oh, yeah, it wasn't creepy at all, everyone. The idea that a Murdoch columnist is writing about me being in the in the bath for weeks on end did not freak me out at all. I was very calm and relaxed about his thoughts. We, we need to be really explicit here, and there are, some of this people might find a bit um, off-putting because I'm going to have to quote some things that have been said in the Murdoch press because there's no other way to understand it properly. Essentially, what the article by uh, Turnbull uh, and Sharon Burrows is, is saying is that Rupert Murdoch is running a no campaign, uh, and he and they're right. All all evidence uh, available suggests that the Murdoch empire uh, of news outlets, if I can use the loosest possible definition of news, are actively campaigning for no. All of their commentators, I think with the exception of Chris Kenny, who has a sort of very soft yes approach, but certainly Andrew Bolt, uh, Peter Credlin, uh, Corey Bernardi. Corey Bernardi actually called it apartheid. 
This is very interesting in particular. So Corey Bernardi used to be a senator from South Australia, yeah. remember, in the 10-year nightmare? It was, yeah. it was an actual thing. And Corey Bernardi has declared the voice a form of apartheid and it's race-based policy and, you know, dogs and cats will be living together and the sky will fall in and it's just absolute social Armageddon, which is really fascinating. I want us to get back to the term South Australia because as listeners of this podcast would know, because we had the Attorney General of South Australia on this show, uh, they already have a voice in South Australia. It has been legislated. It is part of the the apparatus of government and, and administration in the mighty state of South Australia, one of, I should say, my favourite places in the world, and I notice that the sky has not fallen in. I notice that white people are not being denied service to bars and restaurants on the basis of the voice actually being legislated and existing and being a thing in that state. So maybe Corey Bernardi doesn't live in the house. Maybe he just lives in a bubble of his own very strange race-based paranoia. I mean, should we, again, explicit about the fact that McKay Cash, Shadow Minister for Industrial Relations, appeared on that show on the episode where Cory Bernardi called it apartheid. Now, she said that that didn't represent her views, da 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 But at the same time, Michaela Cash is part of Dutton's coalition, which is actively campaigning against the voice, against the referendum. This is, there is a pattern of behaviour here because it's not just Cory Bernardi who has always been a bit fringe. Um, it's, a bit. Also, it's also people like Andrew Bolt. And, and there's a, there's a theme here that I want to stress because what Andrew Bolt said, uh, and I want to be really clear, this is the exact quote. So this is after Linda Burney gave a speech to the National Press Club in which she said that the no campaign needs to stop using American-style tactics in the debate, which subsequently uh, Guardian articles have proven without shadow of a doubt, the No campaign is engaging American-based campaigners, American tactics uh, to run their campaign. So there is, Linda Burney was spot on, spot on, hit the nail on the head. Andrew Bolt goes on Sky to his audience and says, and I quote, Linda Burney, please, please stop embarrassing yourself. Stop hoodwinking voters to about your racist voice. Now, the theme here is... A, like, white man of a certain age deciding that equality looks like racism? That's right. They think it. they are projecting their own views. This is a man who, by the way... Is a convicted racist. Is a convicted racist. He, was yes, found by they- a court to be racist. Like, there is no question that the racists are calling other people racist. And what the what Sky is doing, what the Murdoch press is doing, is it's facilitating that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the idea that you would platform Corey Bernardi, of all people, as, you know, some kind of insightful constitutional analyst is, I mean... I mean, well, it doesn't really brand you as a as a quality news organisation, but, you know, if it's about target markets and eyeballs, I do find it always... It is about target markets and eyeballs, man, because... Here's the point, right? It's about target markets and eyeballs. Sky News has now launched a dedicated channel around the referendum, right? And we're going to hear- On YouTube, isn't it? And we're going to hear more about uh, Peter Credlin. Uh, We're going to hear more from uh, Andrew Bolt. Uh, As I I understand it, it's a 24-7 channel devoted entirely to- to the debate. To devices, non- divisive nonsense. Yeah, A 24-hour divisive nonsense channel. Well, this is the thing, and I've written about this. In fact, I wrote about this for the New York Times, everybody. One of the things that's happening in the new media reality, now that so much media has gone to social media and the masthead publications have sort of been marginalised in terms of various audiences, Rupert Murdoch only has one god, and that god is what, Ben? Money. Money. That's all Rupert Murdoch cares about. And he supports governments, whether they're right, left or indifferent, but usually right wing, based on what they will deliver for him in the markets that he operates. He would literally help campaign for seaweed if seaweed was running an election and enabled him to make more money, right? He has no loyalty to anything apart from that goal. And we should be really clear that the the 24-hour channel is actually going to be broadcast 
Oh, on television. It's going to be. It is going to be on yeah, television. It's going to be available on regional television, and and what Sky is doing as well is you were right about YouTube. They're very heavily into YouTube. They use YouTube as a feeder, and they use YouTube as a place for the clips that are most extreme, and and their numbers that they get through their YouTube channel are extraordinary. Three point four million YouTube subscribers. That's more than the ABC and Seven News combined. And their clips have had more than 1.5 billion views. But I want to make this clear, and this is what my Times article with my Times article was about, was that in the new media reality where borders have collapsed. Yeah. All right. Someone like Rupert Murdoch, there is he's making a product for a domestic market in Australia and narrow casting because the overwhelming majority of Australians do not watch Sky. In fact, the overwhelming majority of Australians would not watch Sky if they had bamboo skewers inserted into their hands. Yeah, well, right? we, we keep getting off with free copies of his newspaper and I won't take them. So. Yes, we will not. <laughs> we will absolutely will not. Uh, but what they have recognised, I mean, these are not stupid people. These are people who are very interested in making money, yeah. is that the big market for them, the money market, is, of course, the United States of America and various pockets through throughout English language countries in Western Europe, et cetera. So the the YouTube presence that's had all these views, they're not going to all be Australian views, obviously. Correct. There are not 1.7 billion Australians, much as we wish they were, and yeah. the harmony and peace that would result from such a proliferation. Sure. However, what they are doing is they are using Australia as a content supplier for the kind of far-right crazy rubbish that they push everywhere else. Hence, during the pandemic, where Sky News clips were going viral amongst right-wing communities in the United States, running sort of arguable, contestable material that the state of Victoria was a communist dictatorship and had had been subsumed into totalitarianism. Well, well during the peak of the pandemic, in fact, the Sky News channel was banned from uploading content because of that exact reason. It was uh, posting medical misinformation uh, and it was banned from, from posting. You know, this is this is a, a an organization. It's not a news company. I'm not going to call it that anymore. This this is a this is a it's an entertainment company. It's an organization uh, that is purely geared at making money. And even to the point where, you know, people people have kind of there's like this running joke in some circles about Sky After Dark and now all of Sky News is Sky After Dark. And it's been this kind of gradual <laughs> where the sun never rises. Yeah, it's like this kind Sky, of Sky where the sun never rises. What a concept. But you know, this is this is how this is how democracy falls, right? It's not gonna be one great kind of wave of change. It's this constant erosion. And this is how media is being is falling as well. This is how news is falling as well. It's this constant erosion. It started with Sky After Dark. Sky After Dark evolved into taking over all of Sky, which then has expanded and infected into regional channels, which has now set up an entire channel devoted to destroying and disrupting the referendum. It is now or it is in also infecting their so-called masthead brands like The Australian. I mean, to be fair, Ben, like their masthead brands, I'd like to draw your attention to the attacks on the ABC and also the greatest Australian hero of World War One, Sir John Monash, who was targeted by Murdoch publications back in the day. Yeah. And we are talking decades and decades and decades ago, is that attacks on perceived political enemies, and I'm sure it was just a coincidence that Sir John Monash was Jewish, were, you know, have been stock in trade for the way that the various stable publications have. I mean, this is historical fact. Like, yeah, absolutely. And, they, and they've done this. Look, and to a degree, they've always done it. And I think what we're seeing, though, is a ramp up of this. Well, there's, there, a, rich, there, there, there's a rich market there. I mean, this is one of the things that I talk about in my QAnon book mm. is what they call conspiracy entrepreneurialism. Yeah. Because there is a market that exists and it doesn't, this is what people have to get about Murdoch, it doesn't have to be a majority of people. Correct. Like markets are not sporting competitions. It's not about winning a majority. It's about as much money as you can milk from the market that exists for your product and getting people to pay a premium for what you're 
selling, even if it has no value to the overwhelming majority of people. And what they're market, who they're marketing towards, which are very credulous, uh, right wing people, far right wing people, hard right people who want to feel challenged by you often know, older, often older who feel challenged by diversity, changing world, and you know, representation mm. and inclusion and all of these things. There are people who are willing to spend money to buy the products advertised on Murdoch channels in order to reaffirm their belief that they are superior, they are in control, society should bow down to them, and to have their paranoias and conspiracies fueled. That is what the model is. There was an article uh, that came out in the past couple of days about uh, Fox News in the United States mm. and the amount of advertising it's carrying for gold and investing in gold bullion and these companies that sell gold bullion mm. who are on on Fox all the time. Oh yes, you'll be safe. You'll have economic yeah. security if you invest in gold bullion and if you melt down all your. Jewelry. By the way, we're not offering investment advice on it, that. We're absolutely not offring investment advice. In if you want to, if you want to invest in gold bullion, that is entirely up to you. To quote QAnon, do your own research. However, it is about it's about targeting those points of persuasion and vulnerability and carrying advertising to a market that will respond to it. There are columnists in Australia and on and on people mm. on the radio who have tiny markets but who exist in a mainstream media capacity because their their advertising that's carried by their programs or their publications reaches the market that will respond to it. And I think the classic example of that is the is the way the Australian has uh, reported on the birthday of John Howard. So this is it is phenomenal how they have done this. So John Howard turned. I wish you uh, could see Ben's face right now. I really wish you could. Look, I have no love for John Howard uh, at all, right? And and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not a John Howard fan. But you know, John Howard turned 84, and the interview that they did with him in the Australian was not about his legacy. It's not about the illegal war in Iraq, not about the the extreme inequality that he set up, not about squandering the mining boom. Tearing down a statue at Old Parliament House, commemorating women's suffrage. That's sort of symbolic of the Howard era. No, none of that. The black armband view of history, if we dared acknowledge that Aboriginal children were stolen from their families. They, they basically focused in on the voice and on the referendum and of course, John Howard was the man who held up a map of Australia that shaded out 90% of the country going, this is what will be handed over to Aboriginal people because of Mabo, right? This is a guy who has consistently taken a racist view of relations between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and uh, settlers, co colonists, migrants, in this country. I just want to remind everybody that John Howard actively campaigned against Asian immigration to Australia in the 1990s, claiming it was divisive. He, he is, without question, he appeals to a certain demographic. It is an older demographic. Clearly, the man is 84. And there are some quotes that are just, I'm, I'm going to quote them, not my views, these John Howard, word for word, John Howard. I'm totally opposed. To you, the voice. You have to understand that in the 17th, 18th century, colonisation of the landmass of Australia was next to inevitable. And I do hold the view that the luckiest thing that happened to this country was being colonised by the British. Not that they were perfect by any means, but they were infinitely more successful and and benef beneficent, beneficent? Bene uh, yeah. Beneficent. Colonizers than other European countries. Basically, John Howard's view is uh, could have been Belgians, could have been Belgians, could have been the Spanish, and there then where would we have been? So his whole view, or the Dutch, is rooted in this kind of nineteenth-century understanding of global politics being a competition between European powers. Australia is not just an outpost of the British Empire. Oh, and we have to ben, and and as that's much that's a shock. We are not just an outpost of the British Empire. We are not just a trading post for uh, American Fox News. 
we are a nation in our own right. We have 65,000 years of history on this continent that we need to acknowledge in our constitution. We have uh, people who absolutely desperately need a voice in the policies that impact them, and yet we have this foreign, because Rupert Murdoch gave away his Australian citizenship. Didn't want to be Australian. We have this foreign billionaire manipulating media outlets for profit and even roping in some reprehensible 19th century ideas from a man who, let's face it, at 84, quite frankly, is probably not in touch with the pulse of the Australian population. Yeah, no, not really, not really. It's extraordinary to me, like, to be a former Prime Minister of this country with more access to information and the truth than any other individual. You can get briefed on, if you're Prime Minister of this country and you want to know about something, there is literally a parliamentary library and a bureaucracy and a Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, like all of these agencies that exist to mm. inform you of whatever you think is and important. Former prime ministers, by the way, they get an office, they get a staff, they get access to all those things. Yeah, that, that access doesn't go away, Yeah, right, to information. To stand there and go, oh, it's the luckiest thing that ever happened to this country. At the same time, every single Australian knows that the government of this country literally took babies from their mother's arms to never be seen again. That happened here. There was a genocide against Australia's first people. And it is like just where I get really angry and why I'm particularly angry in this debate is that you can love your country, and I do. I have travelled to many, many countries on this earth, like many, many, many. I've travelled across the United States of America, across Asia, across Europe, and I love this place. Yeah. I love the Australian community and I think historically we make progress. Generally, when there is a choice in front of Australians to be better human beings, we make that choice to be better and to account for ourselves. And my love of this country is based in acknowledging the terrible, terrible things that happen here and the genocide that happened here. You can love something and be critical of it at the same time. At the same time, I am not going to tolerate somebody going, oh, yeah, Australia's just a totally terrible plant, man. I am also not going to to tolerate this whole, oh, well, you know, recognising things that actually happened, historical realities, just a black arm band view of history. You know, let's be modern democratic citizens and go, our capacity as voters, as human beings, is to acknowledge historical wrong Mm. and progress into... A, you know, an accounting for that. Well, I think I think that's the point, isn't it? You know, oh, that's what the voice is. And, and where we are, we are both proud Australians. We are proud of the many achievements of this country. One of the first countries to have the minimum wage. The first Labor government in the world was in Australia. The first Labor government in a state and federally. From Australia, you know, we have one of the most. Uh, in powerful trade union movements. We have an awards system, which most of the countries do not have, by the way. We have all these things. We have made progress just, I think it was today it's been announced, we've jumped 17 places on uh, on uh, gender equality, economic gender equality in, in this country in the last 12 months. That's what a year of Labor government will do for you. Big feminism, getting it done. Yeah, you know, there's lots of things that we can be proud of about being Australian. You know, everybody's so happy about the Ashes, you know, and the Poms having a whinge. We're proud to see the Matildas win. Like, there's so many things that we can be proud of about this country. But if we refuse to acknowledge that the reality of our constitution... Our pride means nothing. It's built on a fallacy. It's a, And we have to address it. And that's what the referendum is about. It's about saying, this is a... this is a continent that has had a civilization living here for 60,000-plus years. We as a nation embrace that opportunity to be a country that's 60,000-plus years old. We acknowledge that the First Nations people were dispossessed and that we want them to have a voice in the policies that are going to impact their lives and that that makes us stronger, that makes us better, it gives us more opportunity. You know, I'm not Aboriginal. I'm not Torres Strait Islander. But 
I am excited by the prospect of being a citizen of a nation that is 60,000 plus years old rather than the citizen of a nation that was birthed when a bunch of convicts were spilled out of the prison hulks onto the shores of Botany Bay and a bunch of redcoats started opening fire on the black people standing up on the hills. There is That version of history is not one that I'm proud of. I accept that it happened. I accept that it was real. But I want to put that in the context of a much longer, much broader, much deeper understanding of what it means to be Australian. And unless we do that, we're going to be stuck forever with the John Howard view, well, at least it wasn't the Spanish. Good Lord. So look, How embarrassing. I know. How embarrassing do you even platform that? I, I just and I, this is, this I find is, it an insult to Australian values. And this is why... This is why the Murdoch Royal Commission should go ahead because it's not a news outlet. They are not running news. They are platforming views. They are running campaigns. They have a particular worldview. It's about making money. It undermines democracy. You know, I always say the marriage between democracy and capitalism is a marriage between two different political ideology. Capitalism is just as happy under fascism as long as the fascists don't take over the capitalists. We've seen that happen before. Rupert Murdoch would doesn't care. Doesn't care. Does not care. Was very keen, very keen to get into China. China, not so keen on having him. I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why. Because Rupert Murdoch doesn't care who he undermines. He doesn't care what he destroys. He just cares about making money, and that's the Murdoch Empire. And until we address that in a systemic way, it will continue to undermine the systems of our democratic system. Now, Van, we do need to move on because one of the things that John Howard was so very proud of was his neoliberal approach to economics. This is the man who... Privatised Telstra. ...who cut taxes for the rich you know, got the budget back into surplus. This is his big view of the world. Oh, you know, I did all these things. My view, squandered the mining boom, absolutely squandered it. Norway, trillion-dollar sovereign wealth fund. Australia, not even close, nothing even remotely like it. Two university campuses were closed under John Howard. We literally started our slide backwards in terms of secondary and tertiary educational performance. So... The neoliberal experiment, which I think reached its zenith under the Howard Costello uh, management, has been fundamentally found to fail. And yet today, when inflation is once again starting to drop, continuing to drop, it's now down at 6% for the June quarter. Uh, That's down from 7% in the March quarter. Uh, People saying now that the uh, annualized rate uh, is at 3.25, which is in, inside the kind of target or nearly inside the target between 2 and 3%. Uh, there are people saying, oh, this is evidence that the Reserve Bank's uh, interest rate rises are working. These are the same people who are saying that it will take 12 months for any individual rate rise to have any impact on the economy. Something about people believing things they want to be true as opposed to things that are actually true. Couldn't agree so, with you more. So, I mean, go back to episodes of this show where we have talked about economic policy and the fact that Labor banked a surplus in order to be counter-inflationary, the criticism from the neoliberal mandarins about, oh, well, oh, no, Labor's going to tank the economy. Oh, we've got to raise interest rates, but raise interest rates. You know what I think we should do? Raise interest rates. That's counter-inflationary. All the criticism of Labor around the targeted uh, wage relief, yep. particularly in H- oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, and now they're claiming credit for the economic policy, delivering the results that they said wouldn't happen, and claiming credit for the economic policy that exists outside of their paradigm. Absolutely. I'm just like, it's just all it's you. We've as a as a community, we have to stop believing these people. Like because they, they're so wrong. They they're so, so wrong. wrong. There was no need for the interest rate rises. Two, I think it was two months ago. We had we had people at the Reserve Bank, and we had the neoliberal 
uh, elites, the neoliberal cabal, the high priests of monetarism, all claiming that we needed to see unemployment go up by somewhere between 100 and 150,000. That's 100 and 150,000 people. You know, that's as, that when you take into account families, you're talking about nearly 300,000 Australians who would have been impacted by unemployment. That's loss of income. That's potentially loss of home. And them saying that this would be a necessary requirement to bring down inflation in this country. Now, the reality is this. Unemployment Unemployment has remained at 3.5%. And in fact, there was an additional 32,500 jobs added in the last month. So more jobs, but inflation is coming down. Now, remember, I just want to be very, very clear on this point. What the neoliberals told us, what the boss's pamphlet and the architecture of evil told us all Philip Lowe justifying his policies in front of the Reserve Bank Board and the nation was that interest rate rises were to, the point Mm. of them is to encourage wage demands to be suppressed and the point of them is to encourage unemployment. To to reduce demand so that that firms, companies, uh, lay off workers uh, and wage demands go down. Yeah, that's literally the point of the interest rate rises. This is what neoliberals believe. Oh, well, you need a healthy amount of unemployment to put down with pressure on wages. Otherwise, everybody will turn into an exploding barrel. You know, like it is completely mad. And just repeat again, the unemployment rate has not gone up. No. And yet... In fact, more people are employed more and more hours have been worked. Right. So more people are employed... And more hours have been worked, so the point of raising interest rates didn't materialise. We didn't get the result that they wanted, which was more unemployment, downward pressure on wages, but inflation is going down. And the reason is, the reason why inflation is going down, the real reason why inflation is going down, is actually really straightforward because of the work of people like the Centre for Future Work, Jim Stanford and oh, his crew. I love crew. Jim Stanford. The work of people like Sally McManus at the ACTU, the, the, the work of people like per capita, Emma Dawson, who are a good friend of the show there. These are all good friends of the show. I praise all of these people. You know, and lots of people in the union movement and lots of uh, unorthodox or heterodox Heterodox. economists going, hang on a minute, there is a problem with the model because... Because evidence doesn't support it? The evidence says that most of the money that is going out the door of working people that is going out of the pockets of working people... Uh, is going into higher profits uh, and bigger margins. And, in fact, this is the problem. The corporations are making more money at the expense of everyday people, and they used the pandemic as cover. They used short-term supply constraints as a cover for medium-term profiteering. And it got called out. It got called out earlier in the year. Oh, and the Reserve Bank wasn't having a bar of it. And the Orthodox economists weren't having a bar of it. Oh, and then the OECD went, oh, hang on a minute, this might be a thing. And the European Central Bank went, oh, hang on a minute, this might be a thing. And now, of course, now it's acknowledged in this country that there were corporations profiteering, profiteering out of the pockets of everyday working people. Using short-term supply restraints as constraints as cover. And that the Reserve Bank was facilitating that by putting up interest rates. So we had extra pressure on everyday working people for no reason other than an ideological, just singular lens that refused to acknowledge fact and reality. There is no question that the pressure that has been built through the community, built through people who were brave enough to take to cop criticism, and the mainstream media piled on to some of these economists saying they should recant, saying they should literally saying words like recant, by the way, a religious term, <laughs> that they should recant their position, that it wasn't real, the boss's pamphlet coming out and attacking them. Even the boss's pamphlet has had to acknowledge that profiteering drove inflation not just in this country, but across the world. Now, inflation is coming down. The macroeconomic policies, the what I call neo-Keynesian economic policies, and my apologies to Lachlan McCall uh, for, for calling them that, but that, that's an easy way to understand them. 
of making sure that the government is targeting support where it's most needed, running a surplus when unemployment is low and employment is high, and, and ensuring that wages are growing so that overall standards of living are increasing, those macro policy settings are what's actually driving our economy and will keep it strong. It is the high priests of the RBA. It is the Franciscan monks of monetary policy. And the- No, no, no. No, no, this is when it becomes very clear that Benjamin is a Protestant, not a Catholic. Franciscan monks are, are quite selfless. Benjamin, Sorry, that's their it's whole the, thing. It's the Opus Dei monks of monetary policy. I mean, I think you'd have infinitely more to be concerned about with the Opus Dei monks of, of economic Money, policy. Who are determined that no matter what, no matter what the numbers say, no matter what the reality is. They're a cult. They are a cult. Just call them a cult. They're a neoliberal cult. They believe things that are not true. They discount any evidence that contradicts their position and they're leading us to destruction. Why did we have 11 consecutive interest rate rises? Well, there's more than that, I think. And in the end, in the end, now, of course, people are saying there probably won't be another one. And, in fact, some people, and Stephen Corliss, who if you follow online, it's really worth following. He does these quick little videos about this stuff. Is uh, like there actually might be an issue of a cut. There might need to be a cut now because, in fact, the RBA has overcooked overcooked the egg, and we're going to have to fix the problem. You know, these people, these people are messing with the lives of millions and millions of working people. But we're just data points, Ben. Sadly, that's how they see it. We're not human beings. We're just data points. You've got a mortgage, you're just a data point. Speaking of seeing people as just a data point, Van, I want to talk about uh, the Labor government's attempts to end forced casualisation. I love it so much. Because this has come up. uh, This has been an issue for for a long time. Now, uh, Tony Burke, who's the Minister for Workplace Relations, uh, has said it's a good day for Australia's casuals uh, uh, and that... The plan changes will make it easier for casual workers to convert to being permanent. Uh, he says it won't be radical because a lot of people won't take it up. Michaeli Cash, the shadow minister, has called it gobsmacking, called it radical. Uh, the Australian Industry Group calls it new restrictions on the ability to hire people. Uh, the, let's talk about some realities, right? Currently under the law, if an employer signs you on as a casual on day one, and says in writing, there's no firm advanced commitment to ongoing work, then you're casual. But if on day two they give you a roster for the rest of the year, right, you're still a casual, but you've got to turn up to each of those shifts, right? That's a rot. That's not real casual. That's not a casual job. That is a permanent, uh, ongoing job. That's business casual. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everybody. It was a dad joke. <laughs> But the ACTU's done some great work on this for a long time. As of May 2023, 2.6 million Australians are in casual employment. That's roughly one in four people who are in the workforce. It makes us amongst the highest rates of casualised workers in the OECD in non-standard forms of employment. It means that there are millions of Australians who every day wake up with no job security. They have no access to paid sick leave, right? They have no control over what their their hours really are going to be because if they say no to a shift, then they're probably not going to get one next week. That's not a real casual arrangement. There's no equality of power in that dynamic. And here's the point. ABS data shows that 59% of casuals, that's 1.5 million people, work the same hours each and every week. It shows more than half of all casuals have been with their employer for more than a year, and one in six have been with the same employer working the same hours for more than five years. Now, if you're doing the same job on the same hours, week in, week out, for more than five years, that's not casual employment. No, it is not. That's not a casual vacancy. That's not a job that might you know, be dependent on the crops or dependent on the rain or dependent on Christmas sales. That is an ongoing job that needs filling and needs staffing. You know, 50% of casuals 
in a recent survey said that they were worse off than they were 12 months ago, and that's up from 36% a year before. Half of all casuals are worse off than they were before. And people often say, oh, but casuals get a loading van. You know, have you heard this Yeah, one? but they don't. Yeah, oh, I hear this all the time. Yeah. But a lot of industrial agreements that were struck during periods of, wouldn't you believe it, Liberal governments, took that loading away from people in certain industries. And in effect, what's happened is that because of the way employers have structured their arrangements, casual employees earn $11.59 less an hour than their permanent counterparts. You know, so you've got agreements and you've got situations where casual employees, despite the loading, because they don't get progression, they don't get access to career advancement, they're casual, right? They get stuck for years, five years, six years, more. Oh, and all the other entitlements that you don't get if you're a casual. And one of these numbers is really just mind-boggling, right? So it means that the same worker with the same skill level in the same occupation getting paid $40.54 an hour as a permanent employee is their, their casual their casual co-worker working alongside them is only getting $28.95. Like that, I see some of these numbers come through and they're mind-boggling. And this is the, the, other, the other myth about this. Oh, well, you know, youngsters start off as casuals and then, you know, they'll get put on permanent part-time or they'll go full-time or whatever. It's just not true. 60% of casuals in this country are over 25 and 55% of them are women. So you've got the majority of casuals are women, right? So they're in, they're, they're in lower paid employment. They're more than nearly two-thirds of them are over the age of 25. You know, Sally McManus has made this point, Van. Employer lobby groups have been in denial for far too long on the importance of secure jobs. They wanted one-way flexibility to the detriment of working families. It's gone too far and been used as a way to drive down wages. It's time to end this rot, to close these loopholes and give workers who want job security, job security, and to clearly define what it is to be a casual, what it is to have casual employment. Not everyone will go permanent. There will be casuals in the workforce. There will be jobs that aren't there forever. But putting someone on a casual contract forever should not be part of the Australian labour market. I just want to remind everybody that the day that pandemic lockdown started, when we were told they were only going to last two weeks, there were 3.3 million Australians on casual contracts. And if we remember the pandemic and those unbelievable queues that were around the block at Centrelink, like that was part of it, was that we had a completely disposable workforce and no one should have to live like that remember the early mm, days of yeah, COVID, absolutely. where a covid positive guy who worked in hospo in tasmania went to work yeah. because he couldn't afford to take a sick day yeah. i just want everybody to remember that permanence structure accountability responsibility actually really important for the safety of everyone couldn't in the community couldn't agree more van look let's Let's end the episode with some good news. I love this news. Look, I think the, the I think the I casual like, conversion thing is good news, but this is good environment. Yeah, news. I I just want everybody to I'm going to give some relationship advice. Marry a man who knows you love trees. <laughs> this is this is my relationship advice to everybody. You can sub your own gender into whatever arrangement you are in, but if you're going to be in a long-term relationship, they better understand the trees are your number one thing. So Van loves trees, and as does a Ms. Leslie Dart from Canada who garnered 8.7 million views on TikTok of her planting 4,545 trees in a single day. Now, in Canada, tree planting is a popular summer job for university students uh, because they get paid. They get paid between 17 and 44 cents per seedling. This is what casual employment is supposed to look like. It is seasonal. Very yeah. difficult to plant trees in Canada during the winter. Can yeah. I just say as somebody who spent some time there? So this they do this in the summer. Over the last three summers, uh, the, the, they've planted 372,290 trees. Uh, 
this is just incredible. Like the restoration from logging companies uh, and after forest fires has seen 1.6 billion trees replanted in Western Canadian provinces. And Rita Leisner, who worked as a war reporter during uh, the Second Iraq War, uh, uh, this is a quote because she does this as well. She's quite a famous photographer and filmmaker, apparently. And she said, when I worked in war zones and people asked me what prepared me for that work, I told them tree planting in Canada. So it's it's obviously hard work. It's physical work. But it's so important. 1.6 billion trees. And they incentivize people to do it. It is obviously casual. But it is, I think, such good news that so many trees are being planted in Canada and it's it's adding to you know the the carbon capture that we need. It is, and I'd like to say this to Australians who are like, you know, what I'm up for: bit of tree planting, bit of a bit of you know personal responsibility in community effort towards the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country that we live on. Uh, join Landcare. Do you know you can go to the Landcare? Uh, Australia website. This is not a sponsored post from no, Landcare, by yeah, the way. Yeah. I am a light in the eyes Landcare zealot. And you can find activities in your local area that are about land and water management and you can get involved and you can know the joy of being part of proactive care of your environment. I can't think of anything better. Speaking of no- Certainly better than phoning the council whenever a tree gets cut down and crying, which has been a form of engagement that I've made in the past. Ben is frowning. Speaking of uh, knowing the joy of being part of something, our podcast you know, operates. It's me and Van. He doesn't want to talk about that day. <laughs> it's me and Van. Uh, we do it ourselves. We obviously do it at home. Sometimes we do it on the road. Occasionally, in the uh, last couple of Sundays, we've missed. But, we, you know, we've nearly reached a million downloads. It's been a phenomenal, phenomenal run over the last nearly three years. It's free to listen. It's free to download. But there are people who do make a financial contribution. So, you know, we appreciate everyone who likes, everyone who shares, everyone who comments, who sends us an email, lets us know that our podcast has helped them join their union, has helped them re-engage with the political process, has helped them engage their family in conversations about conspiracies and just to to be a family again. Those stories are lovely and wonderful. We want to share those stories with more and more people. And we do that, obviously, through advertising. We advertise to people. We don't take advertising on the show, but we do try and get the show in more ears and in front of more people. To do that, it takes money. And the people who give a one-off contribution, the people who make a buck a week contribution, the people who make a $10 a month extend the reach contribution, and the people who make a $20 cadre contribution all help us grow that audience and get those stories into more ears and in front of more people. So we always like to read out our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters, and Van does it because she's so good at it. <laughs> so I'm going to throw to you, Van. And I would like to say, if you are a new contributor to the show and I get your name wrong, just send us an email with a pronunciation guide. We're way into it. You ready? Let's go. Mattresses, Shamila Lakal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Bali, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Ann Coleman, at Ross Kenner 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colin Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary. M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Anthony Belden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Bromman, Punch Strong Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ashton, Banjo, Naranga Man, John Sharp, and Peter Bath, Louise Watson, aka Red, White, and Blue Lou. And I extend the reach supporters are Murray Bardwell, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, at Vic M. Bid, Adrian Valente, Mazaritza, Currydale 68, Frank, ne- Frank Nyhouse, apparently that has changed, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Shane Horsfall, Helen Murray, Buzzard 62, Janet McKelman, Jeremy Mao, Rosie Elliott, Lara, at Robert Notfill 1, Michael Wise, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slab, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Annie Wren, Melanie Dinning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, 
Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood, At Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, who we met the other day in Noosa, who's a legend, someone, Vita W., Nadita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, At Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, At The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, At Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. And there are a lot of new names on that. <laughs> You awesome people. And look, um, if if you haven't got a dollar and, you know, I'm in the arts, I understand what that's like. It helps us just as much if you endorse the show on your social media platforms. There are heaps of social media platforms now. Blue Sky, Threads, Instagram. A photo of yourself going, I'm listening to the week on Wednesday and my life is better for it would be fantastic on Instagram, can I just say. Absolutely. And, of course, you can also... Uh, go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday to become a supporter, to have your name read out. And of course, we email uh, our supporter list with every episode of the show. Uh, You get it first if you're a supporter. That's that's the trade-off. We also send you some links about uh, some of the stories we talk about. And of course, always a link to Van's latest articles as well. That's the show for this week. There will be a weekend wrap this weekend because I will be home. Amazing. There will be lots to talk about as we go into the first parliamentary sitting week after the winter recess. But until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.